0: Oh, good evening, brothers and sisters. Amen. He is, in fact, worthy. That's why we are here, right? We're here because we value him as the most, he's the most worthy being that exists, the one who has always existed, right? And we know him tonight, and we we can sit and talk about how unworthy we are, and how all his grace is undeserved, and that is so true, we should never forget that. But yet, it is what it is. This was part of his plan. He set his grace and mercy upon us so that he and he alone would be magnified, that we would be the ones that would magnify his name and praise his name and uplift his name and be those who are truly, truly, can truly be thankful, right? So tonight, brothers and sisters, starts a new section in the book of Leviticus. So if you go back from the beginning, the book started out by giving us the laws and instructions concerning sacrifices. Pastor John went through, I guess he was five or six weeks, I believe, going through all those different sacrifices and what they meant and the heart behind them and all that stuff, right? And we learned of important themes such as acceptance, purification, thanksgiving, dedication, and here, and it, helps, and it helps us to understand, when we understand those things, the heart of worship. If we forget the heart of worship, then we're missing the whole entire thing. Then in chapter 8, we learned of the laws concerning the priesthood, right? And if you know, if you understand the priest and their job, the priests were the holy men of God that essentially led in the corporate worship of God. And their jobs were to teach, to do the sacrifices, to intercede on behalf of the, peace of the people and do the work of administration. So the standards for them, as we saw in those chapters, were very strict because of what their work involved. The standards had to be extremely high. Then next in chapter 11 began another section that we just ended. And it begins with all the laws that had to do with purification. And here we learned of dietary laws, laws on contamination, laws concerning childbirth and diseases and the processes that needed to take place in order to become ceremonially clean again. And it ended with the great day of atonement, which John pointed out was actually something that they actually looked forward to. Because it was kind of like a clean slate for them. You know, God's mercies was new daily, we had like a new beginning, right? And then in chapter 17 tonight, begins the first chapter in a new section on instructions, again, more instructions for holiness. Now in one sense, all of Leviticus can be summed up with holiness, right? So here this section is going to speak more of that. And it speaks of the sacred aspect of life, and in particular, the blood which atones, so I'm going to have three headings for tonight. Three headings. Number one is going to be proper sacrificing. The next one is going to be the command not to eat blood. And then finally, where is Christ in all this as the New Testament church? What can we really take? What is all this pointing to? So my title, it's not going to come up. I forgot to put that on the screen. But my title is going to be treating God's commands as sacred which they are, and that is our job to do that. So if you stand with me in honor of reading God's word, I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 17, the whole chapter. And this is what the word of the Lord says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, one of the house of Israel or of strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people." If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Let's pray. Father, we ask your help this evening to understand your perfect word as imperfect people. But Father God, it's no big deal because we have your spirit, the very spirit, Lord, that we say all the time, that gave us new life, that opened up our eyes to see the glory of Christ. So Father, we are relying on him and his power and his strength to help me speak, to help me teach, to help me make sense of all this, Lord God, and to give us understanding in the pews. And I trust, Lord God, that you and you alone will do every aspect of what is needed to be done tonight so that you and you alone may receive all the glory. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, so number one, proper Sacrificing, We see this in verses 1 to 9. So let's just look at verses 1 to 4 again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord... Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. All right, so the first thing as you're looking at this, maybe a question that might come up is, can this be any kind of killing for the purpose of eating? And the answer, I believe, to this question is no. Right? In verse 3, both times in verse 3, kill or slaughter, whatever version you guys are using, is the Hebrew word shafat. Right? And it was the word used for killing specifically for the purpose of sacrificing. It is the same word that has been used in all the preceding chapters concerning sacrificing. Right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 15, there's a different word that is used for kill or slaughter. It says this in Deuteronomy 12 15. However, You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. And the word for slaughter or kill here is the Hebrew word pronounced tabak, right? It's a different word altogether. So this was used for any kind of killing that was just for, specifically for food, right? So, Whether they killed it inside or outside the camp, they were supposed to bring it to offer it as a gift. And if they did not, they would be guilty of shedding blood. That's a serious offense, right? Now, one might ask the question at this time, did all animal killing that you can eat have also, did did it have to also be given as a gift of God? So in other words, if I wanted to have food, that I automatically always have to make it a gift for God first, okay? And again, I do not think so because I do not see any implications of this in the natural reading of the text. So what is the meaning behind being guilty of blood? Usually, when we hear something this serious, we associate it with the murdering of another human being, right? To be guilty of blood, And though God reminds us in Scripture that a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, they are not nearly on the same level as a human being. So why this judgment? Well, verse 5 says, This is to the end, that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So first, this was not just any killing for eating, but one that had to do specifically with the worship of the living God, and in particular, the giving of a peace or fellowship offering, right? The Bible is interpreting itself as we read on. And what I really see it is with peace offerings. Right? Every offering was to be a form of worship, but I really see it with peace offerings. If you remember, what was unique about peace offerings was that, was, is that they were voluntary offerings, they were not mandatory offerings. Okay? If we go back to the beginning of when we started this book, Pastor John again went through each of these offerings. And when we came to the peace offering, he reminded us of the circumstances that led to someone wanting to give a peace offering, which he said really even has nothing to do with peace, depending on how you want to interpret it, right? So those three uh, reasons for giving a peace offering were thanksgiving, right? One of them was thanksgiving, oftentimes when God answered a prayer, and because we were overflowing in our hearts with thanksgiving, we wanted to give an offering of gratitude to the Lord. The second one was a vow, right? Often after God provided for something, kind of like Hannah, right? Samuel's mother. And then the third was a free will offering. In other words, just wanting to say thankful to God for whatever. There's so many different things that we can say thank you to God. So the heart behind The peace or fellowship offerings was gratitude. Now follow me. Sacrificing was not something that was unique to the nation of Israel. We had pagans all around them. Pagans that worshipped false deities. And they offered up sacrifices to these deities. And pagans offered up their gratitude to something that does not even exist or something that was demonic, right? And God wanted to remind the Israelites that he, and he alone, is only worthy of their gratitude. They are his children. So even though they were voluntary, right, they still had to be done the proper way if they were to be accepted by God. If they were to be given, and if they wanted them to be accepted, they had to go about it God's way the way that God has appointed it, or it would not be accepted. So again, this goes back to the concept that we keep bringing up over and over and over again, that true worship of God must be done in the way that he prescribes, not based on the figments of our own imagination. How God has determined it, that's how we should do it. And to do it any other way is to not have regard for what God has said and to not take him seriously. And this is a serious offense that we would do before God. It is to have a low view of him and a low view of his ways. David Guzik says something very interesting, and I like this. He says, and he quotes someone, he says, This thinking runs deep in the modern Western world and is rarely even questioned. As described in the book of Habits of the Earth in 1985, Robert Bella and his colleagues interviewed a young nurse named Sheila Larson, whom they described as representing the experience and views of many Americans on religion. And speaking about her own faith and how it worked in her life, she said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It is Sheilaism, just my own little voice. And he says, this way of thinking dominates spirituality in the modern Western world. But it's not the biblical pattern for seeking God, pleasing God, or becoming right with God. Quote. And I like what he said here. I like that quote, and it's so true. Because the reality is that many Christians in many churches operate this way. And we've talked about that. I praise God that Bible Baptist doesn't do that, but Bible Baptist still has to always leave their guard up and do things according to the way God wants us to do it. So the first reason for being guilty of bloodshed was that this was not just any killing for eating, but one that had to do specifically with worshiping the living God and in particular, the giving of a peace offering. Second, Any offering for God was considered sacred, right? Sacred, holy, belonging to God. When one was to give an offering to God, it was for him and for him alone. This is serious. It was dedicated to him alone and reserved for him alone. Remember that the tabernacle was the place of God's presence, right? And it was a sacred and holy place. And there was so many rules to follow when one would approach the tabernacle. So because the animal belonged to God, the seriousness of the offense was magnified, right? Some verses here, Isaiah chapter 66, the final chapter of that book, says these interesting words. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, they take his word serious. They don't take it lightly. And he says this in verse 3, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Now there is a difference between an ox and a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pigs blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. That's why. And their soul delights in their abominations. I also would choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. And if you remember back to the beginning of the book of Isaiah, because I quote it very often. How the Lord speaks of their offerings and how they were an abomination to his sight. Because they were doing all these things, only going through the motions, and yet they had no regard. They did not consider anything to be sacred. So they were guilty of blood guilt because God is speaking of sacrifices, and those sacrifices were sacred offerings. And there must be a distinction between that which is sacred and holy and that which is unholy or common, right? And we've been learning that a lot so far. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, it reads like this. Her concerning the nation of Israel, her priests have done violence to my law. The ones who are supposed to be the holy people. They have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. And what we see here is the same thing. The priests, again, which are supposed to be the teachers of righteousness and uphold God's law and his truth and his ways, were disregarding it and therefore profaning it. And more importantly, church, we must remember that all this points to Christ, which we're going to get to, right? It all points to Christ. The end of verse 4, we read a very popular thing that we see often as we're reading the Old Testament, especially in these books, the word being cut off, right? So what is the meaning behind being cut off from his people in verse 4? It says that they would be guilty of bloodshed and then cut off. So I believe there's two possibilities. Number one, death, premature death by the hand of God, or removed permanently from the fellowship of the people. And that's not a good thing, if that's the case, because you're removed from a very, very good place, right? So both are serious judgments, but I favor the first interpretation. Most of the time, when we see this phrase, it is referring to things that only the guilty party really knows. In other words, things that were done in secret, right? But God, as we've been watching here, as we've been going through the scriptures, he has been manifesting himself in many supernatural ways up to this point. So to think that one can secretly get away with something would certainly be very, very foolish. But we know... When sin takes control of us, we're certainly not thinking, and we do foolish things. So some verses that convince me of this interpretation are as follows. In Exodus chapter 31, if you go back a little bit, in verses 14 and 15, we read this. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. And as I'm reading this, it's not so easy to know whether someone profaned the Sabbath. They all live. They're all in their own little tents around the tabernacle, right? They were commanded to do something on the Sabbath. How are you going to know what's really going on in all these people's houses? But God knows everything. And we know that if they did it, they earned the death penalty. And we see here that being cut off is used in conjunction with being put to death. Then you have Leviticus chapter 23. You jump ahead a little bit in verses 29 and 30. Again, this is referring to the Day of Atonement. And it says this, For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from the people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. So again, we see here being cut off, being used in conjunction with being destroyed. So when we see this phrase used in this general sense, I believe it refers to premature death by the Lord in some way. We see examples of this already in Scripture. So <clears throat> there are two other senses where the phrase is used, and it means something else. It could be mean removed from the tribe. We saw this in Judges chapter 21. Or a location such as the temple. And we saw this with King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26-21 because he had leprosy, and he essentially he could, he could not get into the temple for the rest of his life. So whichever it is, whether death or being excommunicated, it was a very, very serious judgment. It, wasn't a good, it, was a, it was a good judgment, but yet it wasn't good. Okay. So verse 5, I've already said I believe solidifies the idea that this is referring to killing for the purpose of peace offerings. We've already read that, but let's just read it again. Verse 5 and then verse 6 says, This is to the end, that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So these gifts that were talked about earlier are these peace offerings, voluntary gifts to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the Of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, again, sticking with the theme of holiness to the Lord and worship only being given to Him, this again is about pleasing Him. That's all everything is about, is about pleasing Him. And what do I say so often to myself, I say it to you guys, if I'm teaching and I'm preaching that the only reason why we exist is to please him. That's why we're here, that's why we come to church, that's why we get up in the morning. If we forget that, we're forgetting why we're alive. And that should never be. And this is this was rather Israel's purpose of their existence as it is Hours. And, in one sense, all this is a great privilege, not in one sense, it is a great privilege for the people, because God knew their natural tendencies to commit spiritual adultery, and he is showing them what he desires. You look at all these things, God is showing his people this is what I desire, this is what pleases me. If you go back again, I did chapters eleven and twelve, the beginning of that section, right, and in eleven twelve we learned again about certain foods and laws of impurity. and you moved on to the other chapters, right? Talked about leprosy and other things, right? And I had mentioned in chapter 11, that was kind of the heart behind my sermon, that our attitude towards all this is extremely important. That we can have the attitude of, why, 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 Lord, are you doing this to me? which is certainly not a good attitude, or we can have the attitude, even though we don't understand everything that's going on, we can say, thank you, Lord, for doing this for me. Right? And that is so important. What is he doing for us? Again, he's showing his people what they must do to please him. They're not left in the dark. And then you have this phrase in verse 5, to this end. To this end in verse 5, and this has to do with an aim or achieving a goal. And we see that in verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. So the reason behind the command, God knows the nature of his people and how they are but dust and how they are sinful, right? is to keep them from sacrificing to false deities, namely goat demons. Now, what on earth are goat demons, right? Well, it seems to be a demonic spirit who would appear in the ancient world, right? Many authors note that the devil appeared in that form. We know that the Egyptians considered goats sacred, N.H. Sneyeth says that this word refers to the fertility gods of the countryside in Canaanite religion. So this could have very been what Joshua wrote about when he said these words in Joshua 24:15, that popular verse. He says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua was bringing attention to the nation of Israel, the most important principle for them as they were moving forward, taking on the promised land. That God and God alone is only to be worshipped. Goats are pictured in many satanic cults and the occult in general. Now, oftentimes pagans would drink the blood of the animal to show that they would receive the spirit of the animal. And from doing some research, you'll find out that the spirit is often sexual in nature and has to do with the male goat in heat. And we see that the more depraved people are, the more sexually depraved they are and it just keeps going further and further and further in the gutter. So what does it mean, after whom they whore? It's probably pretty easy self-explanatory. Well, again, the nation of Israel, like the church, was in one sense the bride of God. And any kind of false worship and idolatry was was considered to be committing spiritual adultery. They have broken the covenant of loyalty. Loyalty to their God. In Exodus chapter 34, in verse 10, it says this. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all pagans that were so far drifted from God, right? And he says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. There was no, uh, can't we just kind of just let them allow them to have it? No. He says, you tear it down, you completely remove it. He says, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Unless you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So God is saying, listen, enough is enough. You are my people. I made you my people. And you are to worship me. And we are not to do this anymore. God was extremely gracious. And then in verse 8. It says. And you shall say to them. one of the house of Israel. Or of the strangers who sojourn among them. Who offers a burnt offering. Or sacrifice. And does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. To offer it to the Lord. That man shall be cut off from his people. So. Just like the peace offerings, all offerings are now being covered in these verses. And they too, in the same way, had to be honored by doing it God's way. Especially when those other offerings were mandatory. So you better do it the right way. Everything had to be done the right way according to the way God has said it. Okay, next, number two. In this next section, in verse 10, you see the command not to eat blood. So let's take a look at this. It says, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood, anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, "You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off." Is there any way to be confused in this passage? Because he's very, very repetitive, right? So why couldn't they eat blood? Well, verse eleven says that the life of the flesh is in its blood. So this is where a little word study is helpful. Life here is the word nefesh in the Hebrew, and it means soul, a living soul. Humans and vertebrate animals are called nefesh in the Bible. Plants and insects are not called nefesh, though they're living, in a sense, organisms, they are not called nefesh. Many, many, many good creation scientists say that insects are like machines. They're God's self-replicating machines. Okay? They're not nefesh. We know that they don't have blood either. Right? So all nefesh have blood, which is the life of the being. The difference, of course, is that humans alone have rational souls, in case you guys are thinking that we're the same exact thing. No. Okay? Humans have rational souls. But animals, these animals that we're talking about, these nafesh animals, they have emotions, they have feelings, they have sentience, right? But they are not and never will be rational. Right? And we know this if you have a dog or a cat. You see any you see their emotions, okay? You look at it, you like I love watching nature, okay? That there's something different with them. But they are both an example of life and how life is to be valued and respected. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, I said this before, says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. In other words, someone who has animals, someone who is a a shepherd or something like that, anyone who has pets, they care deeply about their animals and they take care of them. Because they are precious, they are a life, and life is to be valued, and God cares about them being taken care of. Deuteronomy twenty five, four says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now we use animals for work to help mankind. And yet we are not to be cruel with them, but we are to show love and respect to them and take care of them. Proverbs 27:23, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Make sure they're fed, make sure they have water, right? Take care of your animal. Then Matthew 10:29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father far from your father. So God is the giver of life right and he respects and he takes respecting life very seriously and he has no tolerance for those who are going to disrespect it so what is the significance of the blood that it makes atonement says that because the life of the animal was in the blood if there is no more blood There's no more life, right? Someone gets a really bad wound, right? Gets shot, gets stabbed. What is the focus? We have to make sure we get them stitched up or taken care of because the time is very short before they bleed to death. So if there's no more blood, there's no more life. And because sin was so serious and so offensive to a holy god the only thing that can make atonement was a life for a life this is true justice genesis chapter 9 this is just after the flood god's words to noah says but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood we see it now here all the way back who knows how much time a thousand to two years right It says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds blood, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You know what, for us to understand all this, without being humble, there's no way to obey this. You no, know, humility implies the recognition of something, and most importantly, someone that is so much greater than us, right? David Guzik says this again, and I like it it says God agreed that there was spiritual significance in the blood of an animal or person. The difference was that among pagans, they said, the life is in the blood, I must eat or drink it and take that life for myself. And that's what we see in a lot of these occultic rituals, they would drink blood, right? But the godly Israelite said, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and therefore it belongs to God and not me having the right attitude. And then verse 15 and 16 says, And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So why is this here? Right? So, It could be a situation of necessity, just like touching a carcass. Maybe it was something that couldn't have been avoided and it was unintentional. But even if something was unintentional, right, whatever it was, it still made you ceremonially unclean. And you still had to follow all the things because God was trying to, to show us the seriousness of sin and how he is pure and holy and righteous. So like all ceremonial uncleanness, there was a process, in God's grace, by God's grace and his mercy, there is a process one had to follow in order to become clean again. And when something dies naturally, you can say, why was the person unclean to leave it? When, some, when something dies naturally, the blood is not drained, right? It coagulates, and it gets stiff and syrupy to the point where it just gets hard. And because blood was to be drained, there was no way that this could have been done indefinitely. Right? Therefore, if one did not follow the prescription to become clean again, he would bear his guilt, as the scripture said. And why? Because he showed a rebellious spirit. God told you what to do. If you don't do it, you're showing a rebellious spirit. And therefore, you will bear your guilt. All right, so we live 3,000 years or so after this, right? What does this all mean for us? Where is Jesus in all this? So let's first start with the peace offering that we saw in the beginning. The peace offering was given when there was an overflowing heart of gratitude in the worshipper's heart. And I almost wonder if it was only those who were true believers in Israel that gave this kind of offering. Remember, it was voluntary. They were thankful that they were forgiven. They were thankful that they were accepted by the holy God, right? They were thankful that they were part of the great congregation of Israel, God's special people, right? And guess what, Church? Who are God's special people? But us, right? We are part of that great congregation of God's special people. We have been redeemed by the blood, but not the blood of bulls and goats, but the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So let's look at some verses. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5a. The prophet Micah confronts the nation of Israel for all their sinful acts as a nation. He gives off a bunch throughout the letter, right? But in this prophecy, there's also a message of great hope in the coming of the great Messiah, Jesus Christ, who they were looking forward to, but we now as a church, we look back and we're realizing it, right? And now as I read this, you may be saying to yourself, Mike, you reminded us earlier that the peace offering really had nothing to do with peace but gratitude. Remember, we went over that when we went to the the peace offering. And that is true. But there's pretty few things, if any, that can top being at peace with God as a reason for us as the church to be thankful because of what took place for us to be at peace with God. So let's look at the text. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He was not a created being, our Lord. He always was, right? Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. So brothers and sisters, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this for our context. As the church, we are at peace with God. No more enmity. And we are so thankful for that. And if you're not, something's wrong with you. Okay? We need to check our hearts. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And how great indeed is it to be at peace with the living God, to be Gentiles brought near, and having absolutely no enmity with God. And much more in this can be seen in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of scripture here, but just stay with me. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. So church, gratitude we should have because we were far off and now have been brought near. That we are citizens and members of God's household and not just any members, but we are God's adopted children, never to be disowned and we have much to be thankful for. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is why we exist, right? So Christ is our peace, and the reason for our gratitude, because all that he is and all that he did, his person and his wonderful work, And now let's look at the blood. Leviticus uh, Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We know that this was to be done at the tabernacle of meeting and no other place. And we know that it was done constantly because people sinned Constantly. And if something is constant church it's a constant reminder of our condition we are sinful and we need cleansing Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 to 14 says this But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, the heavenly tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of, go- of, uh, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more! Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Remember, church, that we saw that the life of the animal was in the blood, and it was given to them as a provision to make atonement. But it it was temporary. It was insufficient to save. Because it's the blood of animals. But it was also sacred. That is belonging to God, and it was to be treated that way, right? But for us, that great provision was all of God. The Father sent the Son. The Son obediently went, did the work that He did. The Spirit did His job, applying Christ to our heart, and He remains to be our helper forever. God did it all. But all these things in the Old Testament were a shadow of the good things to come. Hebrews chapter 10 now. Again, another long 18 verses. Bear with me. I'm almost done. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these, quali- of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And my phone is not on vibrate. Forgive me. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, who is speaking here. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet." for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. What did our, loss, our Lord say on that cross? Those wonderful words, it is finished. Nothing more can be done or needs to be done that our great risen Lord has done. That which was necessary, God did. So now what, church? Now what? I feel like I can close with these verses all the time because if you're paying attention, I think I've closed or mentioned these verses my my last five sermons. So now what? And my answer to that is going to be Do that which is reasonable. Maybe you know where I'm going. Do that which is reasonable. Offer him, not an animal, but offer him a sacrifice of praise out of your lips. More than that, offer him your life of obedience. Let me close at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, your whole life, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Church, is there anything else more sacred than God himself? And we know the answer to that. So let's thank him with our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we could not pen enough pieces of paper if we were to stop and express every single thing that you have done that we can be thankful for and forgive us, forgive me when we lose sight of that. And yet, we are reminded, as your church, what we just read, Lord God. You will remember our sins and their lawless deeds no more. We are forgiven as far as the east is to the west. Lord, thank you for saving our soul. Thank you for making us your child. Thank you for empowering us with the God of all creation resides within us. That we can do everything that you want us to do under your power. Lord, so thank you so much for your spirit. I pray, Lord God, as we leave this place tonight and as we go to real life, not that this isn't real life, this is a huge part of our life that we come together on this day. But Lord, we have six days when we're not together if you grant us those days, if you even grant us tomorrow. And I pray, Lord God, that when we wake up tomorrow, that we would have such a devotion in our hearts and our lives that our life is not our own anymore. That we would wake up first thing in the morning and thank you and praise you and pray, communicate with you because you have written so much to us. And that we would actually go to the source of your word to us and read it and study it and learn about the great things that you have said to us and that we can come and pray back to you according to your word. Lord, we sang the song that we are a needy people and that we need you. We will never stop needing you. So Lord, help us, I pray. Make us into those vessels that you've called us to be, that really we already are. Help us for Christ's sake. In his name we pray, amen. Alrighty, let's stand. We're going to close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.